Alright, so the intro to this one will be a little bit different than we normally do. Um, for our starters, myself, Dean, I'm away in Kelowna, I'm on vacation, I'm in BC enjoying the nice weather and the boating life. Now Andrew is at Dean's house, because we all live in Edmonton, and they're recording at Dean's because he has a nicer mic. Now, because my computer on vacation isn't reading the sounds via Skype, Dean's actually recording this. So I don't know if this is a Fitness Devil podcast episode or a Dean Somerset episode, but I'm going to take credit for it. He recorded it. Just notice that the voices on my end will be a little muffled and vice versa with Andrew. So it's just not our normal setup. But that being said, Dean has a lot of good things to say. So we get into a lot of the new fitness trends. Just updating on Dean's life and his career as the last years unfolded. He's been on our show twice now, and he's our kind of 50th episode. Bring back the guy who kind of started it all. And then lastly, we get into just some fun talk about all things fitness, um, wrestling. I think we talk a little about movies. Just kind of the normal, get three guys in a room, talk some stuff, talk some fitness, and just see what kind of comes out. So hopefully you enjoy it. Again, sorry about the, we'll call it technical issues, but that's how it rolls. We're not the Joe Rogan show. We kind of just fly by the seat of our coattails, post it, and then see what happens. So again, appreciate listening. If you can, give us a review. And you know, write something. Last review we had was that I sound like I'm always five beers in, which is not true. I'm zero beers in. But if that's the, the consensus, you know what? I'm open for it. So any of those reviews help. Again, enjoy the episode. Shut up and sit down. Well, I guess we can get started. So guys, uh, we are actually recording our 50th episode ever. So we saved it for Dean, who's our first guest and he's been on since. So, And I'm actually at Dean's house, Dean Somerset's house, not Guido's house as usual. Um, so. Guido is, I think, in the Okanagan, so calling in, and we sometimes get creative with how we put these things together so we can make our schedule of one every Thursday. Yep. So, uh, but most importantly, welcome back, Dean. Thanks, guys. Glad to be here. It's awesome to be able to see what you guys have been doing so far, and the fact that you've been able to get through 50. I think most fizzle out after about 10 or 15. I think I'm on 13 right now. and haven't recorded one in like eight months, so you're doing better than I am with this. Well, you got a lot more on your schedule and plate, and that's kind of why we're here anyway to talk about that, so... Uh, yeah, like, I guess that's one of the things that sort of was going to focus in on is the fact that you've now been about seven months working independently, yeah. free of the old commercial gym that we both used to be a part of. Mm -hmm. uh, so what have you been up to and working on most recently? Um, most of it's been just training clients. I'm up to about 40 sessions a week right now training clients and I've uh, got a couple of things in the works with the primary care nurse as well as some of the chiropractors and physios that we work at where we might either be able to do something like a subcontract under them directly or be a point of contact for the medical system to subcontract trainers out underneath me uh, since I've got a CDP designation that helps out. But it's just a matter of you know, going through the paces, getting the motions done, going through the bureaucracy. But in the meantime, just training a lot of clients and then also working on a few seminars that I have coming up too. Uh, so I'm looking at the board earlier, so my travel calendar is looking to ramp up in the next little bit. Yeah, it starts with Houston. Yeah, Houston in September. Tony and I are doing our even more complete shoulder and hip blueprint because <laughs> the last one wasn't complete enough, so now we got to go even more complete. And then we go to Slovenia, LA, and then next year we've got dates confirmed in Philadelphia. Um, I think Boston's on the list somewhere, then Edmonton, and we're also going to go to Sydney and Singapore, plus a few others that are just kind of kicking around. So it's going to be a big tour. In the next 12 months, I'll be in eight countries on four continents. That's not bad. Yeah, it's a good little travel schedule. Cool. <laughs> uh, what have you found it has been different uh, in terms of like the freedom and latitude to do as you please now that you've been working for yourself? Well, the biggest thing is uh, having a structure set in place versus creating your own structure. So that's something that I think is a little daunting at the start of the process, but once you get into having a structure that you can manipulate and organize and is just there, that becomes a lot easier. But going from nothing to having policies, procedures, uh, accounting, banking, all that kind of stuff. That was just a, a bit of a growth phase for the first month or two, but it didn't really take all that long. And then after that, he's doing the same thing, just in a different location, wearing different clothes. Cool. That's about it. And you find that because uh, after you, after I left and then you left, 
um, and a large number of other people followed suit, kind of, I think followed our example. Mm -hmm. You've been at least helping them as they've come out of that situation into private independent, helping them with some of the things to get them set up as well, some advice and guidance along the way. Yeah, I mean, if they're coming in to evolve and saying, I have no idea what I'm doing, what do I do? I'm happy to point them into directions that I found that were somewhat beneficial. I mean, I do that for anyone regardless, because mm -hmm. I don't want to see people suffer needlessly if I can help them out easily. So it's just the basic stuff like, do you have your banking in place? Do you have your accounting in place? Uh, what are you doing to track sessions or to track inventory, sales, all that kind of stuff? So just getting people set up on the business end of things, making an easier process versus saying, okay, well, you're an independent, now figure it out on your own. I've had to do a lot of the same, yeah. a bunch of people coming over, so mm -hmm. I think we've been answering a lot of the same questions. Yep. It's an easy process. I mean, it's not something that's really as daunting as people think it is, but it's just that factor of it being an unknown, and no one knows what to do when they get into it. But like I said, it's the same thing. It's just in a different place with different clothes. Cool. And yeah, we get to wear what we want now. Yep. I've got my own branded merchandise, which uh, I've already got you a shirt, and I yeah. think I'll get See if I can find a uh, Guido shirt somewhere that'll fit him Yeah, and his massive back. I wear your shirt while I'm working sometimes because <laughs> it's comfortable. So people would probably look at it like, ooh, who's Somerset? Yeah. You know, no, no. I eventually got to get on that. So I haven't heard a peep out of Guido. Guido, you still there? Barely. What's going on? Do you have a mic with you? He's so quiet. He's so quiet. That's unlike Guido. <laughs> There's like no mic coming through. I can. It's like a, a very faint whisper. It's so faint my garage band isn't even picking it up. This might just wind up being a me and Andrew kind of podcast. <laughs> In the absolute worst case scenario, we could do that. We could chop this part out if we have to, or limit it because it's ridiculous. But uh, we we'll give you a second to see if you can figure out what's going on on your end. Barely. It's not on. Oh, it's getting better. Yeah, this is like dead air right now. Poor Guido. Can you hear us at least? Well, that's good. All right, I'll tell you what, you take her with that and I'll pretend I'm Guido. So we're gonna pretend this is Guido asking this. And so obviously Dean, you have a reputation for your training knowledge. Uh, we know our world isn't always a question of knowing what to do. You know, the old advice, like just eat less and, and work out more. We know if that worked, we wouldn't have any obesity left. Uh, but real life and emotional interference play a role in this stuff. Can you share some insight into how you work with a client having a bad day, weak year, and they're really struggling to hold it all together? Uh, and perhaps anything even you've juggled in your own career and your own personal experience with that sort of thing? Well, I think the biggest part is just having some empathy for the person and what they're going through. So if you're willing to understand them and say, okay, you know, I understand that this could be a big challenge. Like if I have a client who just had twins and they have literally no free time because they've got two kids running around, plus trying to work a full-time career and maybe- There we go. Oh, there's Guido, he's back. Okay. Hey, did sorry. You, did you hit a button? Uh, Skype, long story short, but Skype just switched microphones on me, so oh. we're good. There you go. Keep talking. All right. <laughs> but anyway, like having empathy for the client has a huge role. Like I, I'm obviously not in a situation where I have twins at home or a sick relative, fortunately, knock on wood. But when stuff like that happens, that takes precedent over a workout plan, over nutrition, over anything like that. Um, if somebody's working a job where they're hectic and ongoing for like 60, 70 hours a week, like I've got some accountants who they've been busy since March. And when I say busy, they're working 60, 70 hours a week, going in on weekends, high stress scenarios. So their fitness isn't going to be a priority when it's like, okay, if you don't file this account, you're going to get fined. Okay, well, that's obviously something that needs to be done. So understanding that and just meeting them where they are and finding ways that they can be somewhat productive in the way that they're going. So it's like, okay, well, what are you drinking while you're at work? Is it like a pop? Is it a juice? Is it water? Anything like that? How do we make a slight move towards a better scenario? And what about when you're parking your car? Is there a way that we can get a couple extra steps out of that? Or at the end of the day, are you willing to do five minutes of stretching before you go to bed? Or what kind of small, low-hanging fruit can we do to help nudge you in the right direction to seeing the positive changes they're looking for while also understanding their situation. It's like I have a client who, her mom just had a brain aneurysm on the weekend. 
And she was like, you know what? I know I need to come in for a workout because it's a stress relief, but I can't come in in three days a week. Okay, well, let's do one and then we'll just make it a lower intensity workout because max intensity might stress you out too much and you might wind up having an emotional reaction to it. Okay, we'll just meet you where you are. And that's kind of the biggest art of training is not just saying, well, here are the numbers, here are the variables, let's do it this way. It's listening to the client, understanding where they are, empathizing with their situation, and then trying to meet them in a position where they can be successful without forcing them into a situation that adds more stress onto what they're doing. If uh, anyone listening to this hasn't listened to our Chad Landers podcast, and Chad may be one of the best people in our industry at this kind of stuff. And he's mm-hmm. kind of legendary for it. He's been doing it what, like over 25 years. He's on his own gym for 15. Yeah. And just the, the way that this man understands empathy and caring about people first, um, you know, Chad is not a guy who does a lot of presentations on technical perfection on exercise, although he does know that stuff as well. He's, yeah. he's an exceptional trainer. He tends to go more on the human element of things, and yeah. you know, he's been one of the benchmarks for success in our industry, probably as a result of that. Yeah. So, I mean, he won the NSCA Personal Trainer of the Year Award for a reason. It's not just because he showed up and paid his fee. I was, I was going to say, when was, was this always something you kind of had in, in your back pocket, or is this something you've kind of evolved over the years? Like, when you first started, um, were you this in tune to, like, I guess we'll call it the emotional aspect of it, or the psychological, but like, when was that shift kind of happening in your career anyways, just because there's a lot of young trainers that are listening? Well, it, empathy isn't really something that you can either teach or be born with. It's something that kind of has to evolve. So I've had my own back pain issues. I've had my own weight gain, weight loss issues. So, I mean, I've gone through stuff and at the same time I've lost family members. I've had situations where stuff happened poorly. So when I put myself into other people's shoes, I can relate to it a little bit more easily because I've got a bit more life experience. If you ask a 16 year old to empathize, they're not going to be able to because they don't get that element of things. They haven't been there or seen that. Or if they have, then probably they they've got a chance to be able to see it. But at the same time, it's a a concept of experience mixed in with what your thought process is and what are you actually looking to get out of the situation. So if you're willing to empathize with your client versus saying, no, I'm a dogmatic approach. This is the way it has to be because blah, 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 blah. The way that you view things is going to change up what you do at the end of the day, irregardless of your experience. So you kind of have to have both going back and forth at the same time. Nothing to add here. I, I was gonna say I, I, I agree completely, and it was something. Um, I don't know, maybe that was my coaching background, but I find that that's almost one of the biggest factors when, like you said, coming to the training session, is that if you get dogmatic about things, you almost can end up messing people up because the empathy piece, you can understand where they're coming from just a little bit more, and then you can be what you need to be for them that day. Yeah, and that's a huge aspect of it that yeah. I think most people miss. And a big part of that is just being able to ask a client, like, how are you feeling today? And then looking for the answer that they actually should give. I mean, you could have a client come in who slept absolutely terrible because there's a big weather change coming through and they had a hard week of work and workouts. And you look in their eyes and they look like a walking zombie. They're like, no, I'm good. I'm ready to go. So then it's like, okay, follow-up question. How did you sleep last night? I slept terrible. I feel so tired. Okay, well, Let's see what you feel like in the warm-up. If you feel better, then we can push hard. If not, we can adjust a few things and go for it that way. Regardless of what's written on the paper, I wrote the paper. I am the god of that paper. I can choose to change the paper if I want because that's something that I didn't just download off of the internet and it's some guy who's really famous saying this is the only workout that you can do. I made that workout. So then I can choose to say I'm going to change this workout. And it's easy enough to be able to do that and help the client get through the session productively without smashing them into a brick wall. I I was going to say, is that built into, I guess, we'll call it your education, but when you have clients that you have, even online, that you give programs to, how do you kind of teach that, we'll call it self-regulation, but how do you teach that aspect of it to people who are kind of working through you online? Or just outside of your training sessions? Yeah, part of it comes down to communication. I mean, if I want somebody to do something, I have to tell them. Otherwise, they don't know that I want them to do that. So that becomes a huge role of me just saying, okay, well, I'm going to assume you know nothing about this and I'm going to teach you as much as I can about it, just so that way you're on pace of what I want you to actually do going forward. And part of it is like, if I have online stuff, I've got some boilerplate templates and cut and paste text that I can just access and paste whenever I need to for specific situations. So it saves me some time, but at the same time, the message is still the same. I need you to communicate with me what you're doing and what you're feeling. How is the exercise working for you or not working for you? Is there a way I can help you better? And essentially, it just comes down to me being a conduit for their success. 
in one way or another. I want to make sure that I'm helping them see results rather than me saying, you have to do my program. I like it. Good. Let's move on to the next thing that we want to make sure we got through. What do you see different about starting as a new trainer in our industry now versus the industry that you began in or I began in? You call them old? I'm older than Dean. So <laughs> yeah. He's been doing it longer. Yeah, I got more white in my beard, but Andrew's older than me on paper. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so today his voice sounds way older than mine. Yeah, my voice is still shot. If you listen to the John Goodman podcast in the future, we've already recorded it and you'll hear it pretty raspy too, but <laughs> hopefully it returns. Uh, and then what advantages did we have when you know you first began and what advantages do the new trainers today have? Well, the new trainers now have unlimited resources of information. I mean, when I was coming into it, Facebook didn't exist. So it tells you like 2004 was around when I got my start in training. That was when Facebook started up. Um, social media, you weren't able to connect with people who were big names in the field or really successful. You had to hope to find somebody on like an email or a website or maybe a Google search was able to direct you to something, but it was really hard to find. And plus a lot of the information at that point in time was pay to play. You can't have a free blog where people are divulging really great information and making it easily accessible. On top of that, there was no social media marketing for a young trainer to establish a brand and create a reach. So you've got so many unlimited free resources now. When I was coming into it, a website was not even a possibility because there was a cost associated with it and I was a broke trainer. So if you have the ability to spend zero dollars and create a million following plus or spend a lot of money and have no guarantee of followers, that's definitely a head start in terms of the marketing elements of things. I suppose. You know, I, I certainly love the people that I've followed and, and know you've been around longer than I have. People like, um, you know, think of Tony Gentlecore, John Romanello are really good examples. We've been doing this a while, or Gene Ferrugia. That's probably also survivorship bias that we're seeing because we're seeing people who were successful and made it through. Mm -hmm. We're not seeing, because they weren't on social media, the fitness professionals that started out but never broke through, never became known names. Yeah. And so a lot of the perception that Maybe it was easier back then because the market wasn't saturated. I think there's some truth to that part, mm -hmm. but we're also getting a misleading perception of what's there's, a, there's also the early adoptership element too. Yeah. The people who are early adopters of any technology tend to do better with it than the people who come into the game late. So like I only started up on Instagram a couple of years ago, but there's people who started three or four or five years ago who have hundreds of thousands of followers ahead of what I'm able to do right now. So their reach is considerably larger because they adopted that technology earlier and they were able to get in before there was such a din of information out there. But then look at guys like Chad Landers. He was doing it long before I was and creating a lot more success well before social media got anywhere. And how was he, he able to do have it. He doesn't have Instagram, or yeah. he does. Sorry. Yeah, he does, but he doesn't <laughs> go nuts with it. Like Brett Contreras just announcing it 400,000 followers. Yeah. I bet you Chad is probably under I, he doesn't make yeah. 2000. Yeah, so for him, a lot of his uh, business development came through old school grinding, you know, forming relationships, creating handshakes, doing door to door knocking, doing a lot of the stuff where you're creating a community within your community, which is a lost art on a lot of people today because it does take time, it takes a lot of energy, and it cultivates over a gradual period versus the quick dash and get a lot of eyeballs but not a lot of cash. So the best way to think about it with uh, like the older style of marketing is you're spending a lot of time and energy getting high quality leads, whereas now you're spending very little time getting a lot of poor quality leads. Like when I think, think about when I think about monetization of uh, large populations, you're looking at less than one percent who are people who are looking to buy. Whereas when Chad was coming into it, guys like Paul Check, guys like myself, way back in the day, um, anybody who was doing this before social media. They were probably monetizing 10 to 25% of their people that they were contacting because they were forming such high quality relationships with them. So yeah, you have a smaller reach, but you have a higher concentration of people that you can connect into. Do you think that there's a, I don't want to say a message, but like kind of a happy medium or like a process in which new trainers coming into the game can kind of take that, but then still have the best of the other world? Like, what does that look like? <laughs> well, you can do both. You don't have to do one or the other. I mean, yeah. when I started up, I was networking with a lot of physiotherapists, chiropractors, doctors, people who I was looking to have them send me their patients. I still do that now. I mean, I'm in a facility where we've got 10 medical professionals, 
So I go and meet with all of them and say, hey, what can I do to help you? What can we work out in a way that's going to be beneficial for your patients? It's not about my business at the end of the day. It's about helping them. And if I make it about helping them, they're going to be more likely to think, oh, this guy isn't just in it for the money. He isn't just in it to snipe off my business. So by doing stuff like yeah, I mean, for, by doing stuff like that, it creates that relationship at a deeper level than what I could do online. But I can still do the online stuff to be able to reach a broader audience and create a capture on both sides. I mean, I've had people in Edmonton reach out to me and say, I want to come train with you over Instagram. I've had people who were referred to me from physiotherapists and chiropractors say, I'm told I have to come in and train with you. So I, you can get it from both ways. It doesn't have to be a one or the other. And the best situation is one that captures the most high quality eyeballs possible and puts them in front of you. I think there are also some professionals. Um, Carter Good, we just had on the podcast, and Patrick Humphrey does a wonderful job with this, where they actually have access to a very large number of people through their social media things. Patrick's group and, and Carter obviously has got one of the biggest followings on Instagram energy. But what they do is they respond, they engage, and they actually engage in these high quality interactions, develop relationships with these people. And I think that's going to create a funnel, I hate that word. It, to where some people are going to say, you know what, you're actually really amazing this stuff. I, I want to coach with you. And they're both online coaches. Yeah. So it's a perfect vehicle for those guys. Yeah. I mean, you create, you, you always want to do business with people who are your friends. So it's not a matter of, okay, well, I know what I'm talking about. So just give me money. You have to form a bit of a relationship with people to make them trust what you know and where they actually feel like they want to spend time with you. I mean, if you've got the pop, uh, the personality of a dry napkin, it's not really going to go that far. No matter what you're doing, whether online or in person, you've got to have a little bit of pizzazz when you're talking with people or trying to get them interested in something that, let's face it, for many people is unpleasant. Exercise isn't something that's high on their list of, yeah, if I get a chance to do great, I'm going to go do this. So we have to kind of up the ante and make it a little bit more of a, a performance art, so you, so you could say, to make it something where they actually want to get engaged in it. Have some fun with it, use different verbiage or terminology make it a game, anything that we want to do to make it so that they can get engaged with it. Well, and that actually brings up a weird question, <clears throat> is that we're talking about clients who don't necessarily want to do training and stuff. On the other end, you do seminars and you coach fitness professionals. Mm -hmm. Which, I'm not going to say which one do you like better, but do you find that you enjoy being around other trainers and teaching because they want to be there and you know they want to be there and they paid you and they're like, yeah, I want to hear from Dean Somerset. Like, what's that feel like for you? It's cool because you get the chance to see people who are really engaged and involved in what they're doing. Um, I've had a couple of times where I've taught seminars that were for free as part of educational processes. And you can tell the people who were there are, were only there because they were told to be there, not because they had any kind of an investment in it. And it makes it a little bit of a challenge because you're trying to show them stuff to make them get better at their job, but also put more money in their bank account and make them have more fun while they're at work. And they're just almost entirely switched off. I mean, I'm sure, Dean, you being a teacher back in the day, you probably had students that were like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so it becomes a challenge to talk to them. Whereas the people who are investing and paying money to come to a course, they, they're usually a little bit more keyed in to say, okay, I want to be here. I'm listening harder. I'm trying the exercise. I want to ask questions following up. And when you have enthusiasm in a room, it breeds enthusiasm. So I get psyched up when people are getting into it and finding things and hitting that light bulb moment because then I just want to take it further and further and show them more stuff and get them doing more stuff. So it's something that's really cool to be able to get into. Do you think that that's kind of what drove, I'm not going to say the seminar series, but like that kind of feeling is kind of what pushed you to do more of that, especially early on, you kind of were already doing it? Part of that, but then also, I like helping people and solving problems. So yeah. when I had people who were emailing and asking a lot of the same questions, I was thinking, well, maybe I should create an educational resource for this. Um, yeah. It makes it a lot of an easier process when I'm able to teach a broad audience and have 50 people ask the same question. It's like, okay, that wasn't covered. I can dig deeper into that. But that's why we're coming up with our even more complete shoulder and hip blueprint. And we knew that there was enough people asking the same kind of questions where we could say, okay, well, this is something where we could put together a resource on it and answer a lot of those questions and dig deeper. And make money. Like it's, it, yeah. it's funny because like how many, all the people that are going to that, how many are like, I guess you don't know at this point, but are going to be return people from the first one? Um, Actually, the funny thing is, right now we're at less than 10%. Really? Yeah. Because uh, we knew it would be a tough challenge because we're going to places that we haven't been before. So yeah. it's not people who are who, who were easily able to attend previous workshops. Like we're going to yeah. Slovenia, which we've never been to before. The closest yeah. place to that would be Prague. And we've got one person from Prague who wasn't attending the last workshop. 
So what we did to kind of split the difference was we just included the digital video version of the first workshop for free for anyone who's coming. Just to make it so that it's a higher enticement for people who haven't done the first one before, but also to make it so that we could justify a bit of a higher price point with it. What's the even, even, even better hip blueprint? Are you going to include all the series plus the new one? Well, we might call it like the seriously complete hip and shoulder blueprint or something like that. I know, you probably actually have it planned already. Not even close, no. I'm, I'm just trying to get through this week. That's about it, right? Okay, let's, uh, let's jump to some of the things about merging, I guess, services or fitness trends. And like, what do you think that consumers are going to want that, I guess, isn't being offered? And just kind of... With the new technologies, is there going to be something that you think is going to be big and that we can include? You know, I think the biggest thing that we're starting to see right now is that there's been a lot of automation, a lot of automatic processing, a lot of group stuff, but we're losing that personal touch. And a lot of the time, people are starting to go from online stuff because they don't have somebody showing them what muscles to activate. They don't have someone yeah. showing them how to set stuff up. And there's quite a few people who are going from online into in-person training because they don't have that in-person touch and they don't have that coaching in front of them to be able to show them what to do. I mean, you look at, there's a number of online coaches that have been very successful who've ditched online coaching or not ditched it entirely, but reduced it and then opened up their own gyms or started in-person training again. Because from a coaching standpoint, we're people people. We want to be around people and you can't really do that well through the laptop screen or wherever you're looking at. So having somebody in front of you is an entirely different scope than having a scaled and monetized uh, online coaching business. It does give you a little bit more financial freedom and ge geographical freedom to have online, but then you lose that human connection that you might want. But on top of that, your clients, they might be wanting that human connection. If I tap a client on the lats and say, flex these, they feel that right away and they know what's going on. They can say, okay, well, I, I get the position now. If I show them video feedback of a video that they sent me and I say, okay, well, you see here, you're not getting this going, it becomes a little bit more complicated for them. Whereas just getting that in-person human touch makes a huge difference. So I think we're going to start seeing a lot of people going from the online elements of things into kind of a blended model between online programming for some elements of things, but then getting in-person coaching for other things or going directly into in-person coaching. I think that there's enough people who are starting to say, you know, this is where the money's at, that they're going to either go into semi-private, small group or one-on-one -on -one training just to get that direct level of care and attention. So what is, what's old is new again? It kind of goes to, indeed, I'm sorry to steal a question that, you know, I'd written out from you after, but I think it's just so on top of this. We're seeing this increase in interest in the selling of the idea of online coaching. Mm -hmm. And it also feels like a lot of newer coaches and trainers seem to be in a bit of a rush to get away from coaching people on the floor, working with people. Uh, we've had recent podcasts that have a couple of prominent business coaches, Ryan Ketchum, and by the time this is out, uh, Pete Dupuis' episode will be the last one we released. And John and, Goodman. And, and John Goodman yeah, will be John coming out. Yeah. So, and, and John certainly did speak to the online training stuff. Yeah. But, uh, and, and these are quality people, these are really good people, but we're also seeing a lot of, if you're on Instagram, you see sponsored ads from someone you've never heard of constantly offering, I teach trainers how to maximize their income and blah, blah, yeah. blah. So, I guess let's elaborate on your thoughts on this rush of new trainers to get away from actually working with people in person. Where's that coming from? Well, part of it is the, the shiny coin, right? So it's something yeah. that you see people doing who are successful and there's that fear of missing out where you're like, oh, I want to get in on that. I want to do that. Great. It, it's something that the people who are doing it and doing it really well, guess what they have a lot of experience doing? Coaching people in real life and developing results for those people in real life so that they can say, okay, here's workouts, here's systems, here's processes that I can now scale and monetize and put into a, a way where I can affect people across geography. It's not something where it's like, oh, I have taken an ACE course, nothing against ACE, but I haven't trained a single warm body in my life and now I'm going to start charging for meal plans. So the barrier to entry into training an in-person client is very low. The barrier to train people online is ridiculously low. So you can have a monetized site up and running in an afternoon, whereas it takes at least a weekend to become a trainer, hmm. right? So it's not something where there's much of a barrier. And if you're a woman who's got a curvy body, a six pack, great, you can set things up. You can have a very strong Instagram following and that's not to say anything about the knowledge base, but that's just where marketing and directions go, sex sells. If you're a guy who's able to bench press 600 pounds and deadlift 800 pounds and you have a six pack and you're, you have a bit of a personality, 
you can do the same thing. It's just a matter of, okay, what do you do? I'm neither of those things, so I have to rely on knowledge base. I'm not a curvy, attractive female, so I can't do that that well. You're, you're attractive, though. I, I, I got uh, a solid 6 out of 10 going for me. I'm above <laughs> average, but I'm not quite uh, rocking the 10 out of 10. <laughs> do you think that, and this is like a weird, um, do you think that people are going to be able to see in the coming years the difference between, we'll just call it, somebody jumped right into it as opposed to someone who has the experience and their product shows that? Like, When does that, the better product, become the norm? Does that make sense? Well, and what is, how do we educate people to know what the, that looks like? Yeah, I mean, think about what the evolution of products and uh, coaching and stuff looked like from even just five years ago, right? So for a lot of the time, online coaching was, here's an Excel spreadsheet or a Word document, because this is all that exists. Now you have apps, now you have databases, now you have everything going, you have professionally shot videos, and a lot of people, even just for Instagram posts, are paying editors and photographers and videographers big money to professionally shoot their content. So that didn't exist five years ago for a training scheme. So that tells you that the barrier of production is getting a lot higher. So the barrier of production of the workouts themselves is also getting a lot higher because people are getting bored with basic, general, and non-specific. So you can still get some good results from that kind of stuff, but at the same time, the, the consumer is getting a lot more savvy because going back to our initial point of social media, there's a lot more free content out there that's easily accessible by everyone. So you're gonna get clients questioning you on stuff like, why are you training a, a two to one push to pull ratio? versus training a one-to-one -one or a two-to-one pull-to-push ratio. They'll ask those kind of questions. And the trainer has to at least have enough honesty, integrity, and intelligence to be able to answer it properly, or the consumer's gonna say, you know what, this isn't for me, I'm gonna go elsewhere. Because that barrier of knowledge so entry that, that into everything. Okay. No, sorry. No, no, that's fine, you go. You go, Dino. <laughs> I guess he went. <laughs> he seems to disappear again. Oh. completely cut out. Um, and guys, for listening to is we don't have any video to interact with you, so we'll try to avoid interrupting each other too much. And uh, yeah. uh, Somerset and I in person is not so bad, but poor Guido's, uh, you know, just... He's houseboating in the Okanagan. He's got a hard life right now. Yeah. It's, oh, there it's, he is. If you're hearing me now, my Wi-Fi just cut out for a second, so I'm back. There you go. <laughs> uh, we're doing okay. Well, do you, do you want to move on to the next question? Sure. Do you have it ready? We, with this podcast, we're not the Joe Rogan show, so things are different every week. It's great. That's all right. That's what audio editing is for. Nah, screw well, editing. I'm not even going to edit any of it. I think it's great. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll have like, that five-minute section of dead air where we're trying to figure out whether Guido's mic turns on or not, and we'll just leave that in. <laughs> Maybe. Well, <laughs> the, one, the, the one time Andrew's at a party, the other time we had like a three-way call and Andrew's audio wasn't working, and there's a fire alarm. It's just all great stuff. <laughs> yeah, I remember that happened too, yeah. Yeah, it's real. Hashtag real talk. <laughs> okay, yeah. I, okay, let's just go on in terms of, well, yeah, go to the next question. Gym owners, I, this one's a good one. Uh, did you skip something? Oh, no, actually, that's right. It is the next question. Okay, so, God, we're awful today. Uh, <laughs> well, a little while back, I actually made a post about gym owners allowing members to film themselves, encouraging them to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, and we've seen at least one local rec center, these guys keep doing dumb shit, where they actually get the news about asking a woman wearing a sports bra to leave. That was real smart. Uh, the same gym actually told a client of mine he couldn't wear an evolved t-shirt while he was working out there. Mm -hmm. So let's go into that conversation about gym policies, beneficial, detrimental, uh, maybe what they should do, and what members shouldn't tolerate, and then maybe we shouldn't leave out the naked guy at the Planet Fitness and his expectations of the no judgment zone. Yeah, you know, that, that whole Planet Fitness thing, I think that was kind of like a Sasha Baron Cohen trolling element where he was trying to troll them and see how far he could take it. Like there was videos up in Planet Fitness a little while ago where people were purposely going into Planet Fitness, deadlifting, grunting, yelling, and doing everything they could to violate their no lunkheads policy and get kicked out. So cool, funny, it gets him in the headlines. I half expected him to be from Florida, but uh, you know, Florida's kind of like the drunk white chick of the, the US as far as what happens that shouldn't be happening. And Andrew knows what I'm talking about on that one. <laughs> yeah. So, but at, at the same time, it's like Planet Fitness has that set up for a reason. They, they know who they want to attract as far as members. 
and they're going to go after that individual as much as they can to create an environment that they feel safe in, where they don't feel like there's something going wrong that would push them out the door, and that makes them want to come back and be a regular recurring member all the time. John Romanella wrote a great post a couple of years ago where he's like, Planet Fitness doesn't want you, they want your mom. They want your grandpa, they want your aunt, they want your uncle, they want your little brother who's 50 pounds overweight who feels uncomfortable going into a regular gym. They don't want the bodybuilder or the powerlifter and they're going to do everything they can to to cater their marketing towards who they want. Cool. For a city facility, who are they attracting? People from the community, general members. So they're going to try to get as many people in the door as they can who may not feel comfortable or may feel intimidated coming in. And they might feel that somebody walking around in a sports bra is intimidating to them. I don't know why, because people have sports bras. It's not something that's uncommon. Wearing a t-shirt of a, a competitive company for a public facility that city run is kind of weird because it's just weird. It's not a private company. It's a public entity of the city. So everyone's going to have their own policies and procedures as far as what they want to do. It's just a matter of does it make sense and who among your membership base is going to affect positively and negatively. Telling somebody who's a diehard exerciser who forms a great community that you can't be in here because you wear just a sports bra and not a tank top on top, that person leaves and they take a portion of that community sense with them, which affects the overall culture of the gym. Now, maybe that individual is a toxic individual. I don't know because I don't know the individual. I don't know the scenario. So having them leave may actually be a really good thing. Maybe this was like a fifth strike and you're out kind of thing. And it only made the news because the person complained to somebody they know in the media. Don't know. All we know is that they made a policy decision to say you're out because of a sports bra. So if 50 other people are wearing sports bras, are they all out too? So part of it is understanding what the policies and procedures are. Who does it affect positively and negatively? And how consistent is it enforced? So if you have a zero tolerance about something, you have a zero tolerance about something. If you have a sliding scale and you're going to catch this person but not catch that person, that's unfair. So now we have to start thinking, okay, well, we have to catch everybody in this. We have to reinforce it. We have to do all this kind of stuff. And it becomes a really hard thing to enforce people who are paying to come to use your equipment and pushing away business. So having stuff like, yeah, we'll, we'll let you film. We'll let you do all that kind of stuff. Just respect your, the other member's privacy. Don't do it in the change rooms. But if you want to film yourself, if you want to do that kind of stuff, here's some great spots for selfies based on lighting. Here's ways that we can encourage members to come into the gym and actually have fun and create a good experience. Cool. That makes everybody happy. If somebody complains about somebody filming themselves, okay, well, people are doing form checks, they're doing coaching things, you never know what they're doing. If they're taking a lot of annoying selfies, guess what? Don't look at them. As long as you're not getting in the background or as long as they're not filming you, there's no problem with that. Yeah, and we work in an environment where, you know, God, the power workers especially are pretty much filming almost everything that they're doing. So yeah. I've even said, and I think this speaks to, you know, all the trainers listening. If you're in an environment where at any given time you might be on camera, a pretty good idea to always be very careful about how you conduct yourself professionally because um, you never know where you're going to show up. Yeah. So it keeps me on my toes. I'm pretty militant about that anyway to, to set a very high standard for professional conduct uh, and how I appear and interact with people. But you know, yeah, if you could end up on camera at any given time getting caught picking your nose, well, yeah. Or pick another body parts. <laughs> when it gets hot and humid, stuff starts sticking, right? But I was going to think, even for, we'll call it trainers, when, when should that conversation with themselves happen where they have to kind of, we'll call it cater to who they're going to cater to and how they kind of present themselves? Like, obviously, like, what does that conversation look like for like fitness professionals? Because this is outside of a gym ownership. It's like, who do you want to market to and how do they go about doing that? Well, there's the people that you want to have as clients and the people who pay your bills. Sometimes those are completely different individuals. So I made a lot of my initial success and gains by working within the medical community and working with injuries and people that are coming off of musculoskeletal issues. I want to work with athletes because that's just cool and I enjoy doing it. But the market of athletes in any population is less than 1%. Except if you're getting into like the very young athletes, like the teenagers in college and that kind of stuff, it might be a little bit higher. But even then, a lot of those athletes don't have a lot of disposable income to spend on training. So for every one athlete that I train, I might train 50 people who are recovering from hip replacement or patellar tendonitis or shoulder surgery or something like that. So what pays your bills versus what feeds your passion? A lot of the time, you can blend the two and make them into something that's really neat. So like if I've got a client who's got patellar tendinopathy, Guess what we're going to crush a lot of deadlifts? 
and we're going to do a lot of hip focused stuff. We're going to do a lot of reactive training stuff that doesn't take the knee through a huge range of motion under pressure. But we can do a lot of really cool stuff for somebody who's got an injury that we can work around while training them like an athlete. I mean, I've got clients who are going through like spinal rehab where they're sweating buckets by the end of the session because I'm getting them to focus on doing different things than what a normal rehab program would look like. And it is more of an athletic style of training, but at the same time, it's getting them the results they're looking for in a safe environment. So part of it is who pays your bills and who do you want to work with? Go towards the people that you want to work with, but don't neglect the people who are paying your bills. Yeah, actually, it's sort of interesting too, because some of the advice you are getting in the industry is about defining your ideal client and niching yourself very, very hard. And yeah. I'm sort of resistant against that particular narrow focus because I think that any fitness professional, certainly anybody new who would try to position themselves away from dealing with general population clients, that's very risky behavior. It can be, but it can also be really lucrative too. So if you're a jack of all trades and a master of none, that's a problem. So if you position yourself as saying, here's my niche, but I'll train other people as well, that makes it a really beneficial situation yeah. for you. So you look at somewhere like Cressy Sport Performance, what do they niche into? Baseball players, and specifically pitchers. Who else do they train? Everybody. They'll train athletes from all sports. They also train general population people. They just niche themselves towards those individuals in the baseball training realm, which is fantastic because now they're the leading authority, or at least in the majority of scales, that's the leading authority as far as baseball pitchers and off-season training. They also have so much resources for boot camps. They have it for baseball, basketball, triathlon, all the kind of stuff that you would expect across the spectrum. And they're able to niche, but also be broad at the same time. Pete talked a little bit about this. If anyone's more interested in this particular discussion, again, I mentioned the last episode, Pete Dupuis, he's the co-owner and yeah. uh, he's the guy behind the guy in Crisis Sports Performance. Yeah, he's the puppet master. And he definitely uh, gets into what we just discussed, but in more detail. Yeah, really right. smart guy. He's a really good friend too. I always love bouncing ideas back and forth off of him. He's got like the driest, most sarcastic personality you have ever imagined. And when you get into like a vehicle with him and you go for a long drive, you don't know whether he's joking or not. But then it's like, that was actually pretty funny. Wow. <laughs> All right. I was gonna. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I was gonna say hit him with the rest. Like with 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 Dean, we always have to touch on wrestling or some sort of thing that's nerdy because. Dean's nerdy. Well, I'm, sure, I'm sure that whatever graphic we come up with will be his face plastered in some 80s era wrestler probably with, yeah. with a belt. But yeah. yeah, so I grew up with golden era pro wrestling. So I, like I said, I'm a little older. Um, Hulk era. Hogan, Macho Man Savage, Andre the Giant, you know, those guys, Roddy Roddy Piper, Gunrest, all their souls except Hulk are still going. Yeah. Uh, it's always been a forefront as a passion of yours. Uh, so is it just a male soap opera that you indulged in? or a childhood devotion that you never quite grew out of, or, or something else. And then let's actually have some fun with the idea of wrestling being fake and the physical demands of athleticism within pro wrestling too, so. So that's like nine questions in one. I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's usually how he does it. In terms of it being like a soap opera, yeah, there's definitely a theatrical component to it. But the interesting thing about wrestling is the style that they use between stuff that's on stage and stuff that's shown behind stage, off camera, or off stage is only really shared between WWE and the Muppets. Those are the only two types of shows that have the blending between on stage and behind stage show as blending as part of the show itself. So it's really interesting to look at that and say, mm, you know what, there's kind of a neat dynamic going on with that that you don't really see across a lot of other shows. Yeah, there's a soap opera element, especially when you look at the reality show spinoffs that are coming out from like Total Divas, Total Bellas, and all of the stuff that goes on between like Instagram, Twitter, and people kind of creating a storyline back and forth that almost separates a fourth wall. So yeah, the, the storytelling is really neat to be able to see that. On top of that, you, you think, figure these guys are like performing 300 nights a year. So it's not like a normal fight where it's like, okay, you go and fight, now you got six months off to get ready for your next one. They still have to get in the ring and do something to wow stadiums full of people on a nightly basis. So physically, they have to go through it. You never really hear of wrestlers retiring in good health because they're usually beat up. And obviously things like substance abuse or whatever else goes along with it, it's a lifestyle for many of them. It's dangerous for many. But at the same time, it's something where they put their bodies on the line every night to entertain thousands of people. So from, yeah, the, the soap opera standpoint, really cool. The physical standpoint, that's awesome. 
and to be able to watch the evolution. Like when you look at women's wrestling from back in the golden age, like you were saying, it's a punch, a headlock. You were really a gifted woman if you could do a drop kick. Now they're doing like 450 splashes off the top turnbuckle, moonsaults out onto the floor. They're doing some crazy, crazy shit. And they're getting incredibly athletic with what they're doing. You've got guys that are 300, 350 pounds who are doing flips off the top rope too. And they have to run and be fast and be strong and do all this stuff on top of it. So from a physicality standpoint, you've got guys that are like ex-strong men athletes who can do 60-inch box jumps. Like that's insane. Like a 6'9", 350-pound guy who can do a 60-inch box jump. How many times do you see that in the gym? Never. Exactly. So these are guys that are the freaks of nature doing stuff that no one else should be able to do. And you also have the lightweight guys who are doing like crazy triple flips off the top rope and hitting people. And they do that night in, night out, every single time. What would uh, what would you do if this man called you up personally and said, hey, I want to hire you to basically like keep these guys in shape and tour with them 300 days a year? Touring with them? No. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, you want to hear something funny? Yeah. I'm going to be at a live wrestling show on Saturday. <laughs> in or at? It's just weird. It's, it, it's super weird, but it's called like Greasy Tours. It's basically these guys that set up a wrestling match on a houseboat, but they do it on a beach. Okay. And like everyone comes in from like all around, and they have like this huge production on a beach, probably. So are you but gonna be like? I'm going to like some backyard stuff this weekend, so okay. I'm, I'm in it, man. So you're like actually taking shots and taking bumps, or you're just watching and cheering on? Uh, I think. They've done it where they've had people come in. I'm not going to do it. Okay. I think that, that these guys are like legit. So like legit meaning like they're, I don't, I don't want to say hobbyists, but like it's, they've had they some training. <laughs> they've had some training. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, the crazy part. Like, because like a lot of the stuff, like the, the staff on it, they usually just have medical staff travel with them, but the yeah. training stuff is all in the, the performers on their own diet. So yeah. John Cena's brother has a gym in South Florida called Hard Knocks. Really cool facility. It's just like a hardcore dungeon that's closed off to general population. It's pretty much just set up for WWE guys to come in and train at. Mm-hmm. So I'd probably do something like that. Their performance center in Florida, Joe DeFranco had a huge role in setting that up and creating it and staffing it. So they've got a facility where they run all of their developmental guys through and the strength training element out of that, I would gladly do something like that for a little while because it's just a cool experience and opportunity. But I hate the travel every single day, new routine, new hotel gym. I wouldn't want to do that. Like that's enough of a travel schedule for me. Yeah. What I have coming up in the next 12 months, like doing that every single day, no. And plus they were gonna let you wrestle on TV and they're like, you know what, we got a spot for you Dean. You're gonna be on the show. Would you quit everything? You know, I'd take a bump or two, but no, I, I wouldn't really <laughs> want to do that on a daily basis. Like, those guys are a different breed. Like, they definitely... Yeah, they staple each other. Well, yeah, I mean, they staple each other. They hit each other in the head with chairs. They, like, <laughs> punch each other yeah. and make it so that it's as close to real as possible. But even then, like, the beating those guys take on a regular basis, if you don't land properly, you're going to get knocked out. If you don't land properly, you're going to break something. I don't want to take that kind and, of mess. And then there's things that weren't part of the plan. I mean, my, one of my favorite matches of all time, I rarely ever watch this stuff anymore and just don't have time for it, but it was not a wrestling fan, I was like, oh, fuck. But uh, <laughs> when Undertaker and Mankind had that steel cage match, which is probably yeah, one of the most that's legendary, legendary. That's legendary stuff. So they're yeah. on top of the cage. I think, I think what happened, I think Undertaker climbed up on top of the cage to more or less get away from Mankind because Mankind should have died by now. Yeah. And he wanted to hide from him. So Mankind still climbs up on top of there. And then so Undertaker's like, all right, well, fuck it. Choke slams him up on the top of the cage. Yeah. Cage breaks, Mankind falls through it. Yeah. And then he's still not dead. Yeah. Eventually, I think he throws him off the top of the cage. Actually, I think this was earlier, yeah. onto a table of tears. Yeah. And the, the, he landed awkwardly on the table, like he overshot the table and almost landed like on the floor. He barely caught the edge of the table. They kind of stretch him out, he falls off the table, gets on top of the cage, gets choke slammed through the cage. He's got a tooth poking through his nose. Yep. So they finally try to haul him off that way and he's like, nope, not done, gets back in the ring, finally gets tombstone done. But then he actually did a run out later on to interfere in the match <laughs> later that night. And people never really clue in on that. He doesn't remember any of that. He's like, I had to go back out. Apparently, I don't remember it. You look in his eyes and he's just like, done. But yeah, he just kept going. You got to wonder, like, you know, hopefully, you know, hopefully he sells a long life, but you know, get a look at that brain after he passes on for CTE and some of the yeah. stuff that you get. That was the whole nature chair shots to the head. Oh, God. <laughs> like, he's, he's still. For sure. 
Yeah. He still does touring and like stand up comedy and storytelling and stuff like that. Like he's come to Edmonton a bunch of times. I haven't had a chance to go see it, but I mean, man, you talk about a guy who can tell some stories. He's probably got a lot of them in his back pocket if he can remember half of them. <laughs> okay, let's, um, fuck. I remember that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you figure there's a portion of his life that's just a blur, and it's not something that's really easy to figure out. At least it's not documented. Like, at least, because they still have probably the videos and everything for all that shit, because it was all... Well, yeah, the parts that were on camera, but then you got to figure the stuff that he had, like, just getting from one location to another, or some of the nut bar stuff that he was going through backstage. Like, drugs, it's for tough, sure. Right? Yeah. Tons of drugs. Maybe. I mean, I don't know. You can't really assume anything. I mean, there's some people that had a lot, some people who didn't, but that's part of the culture. Maybe he was one of the guys who didn't really touch a lot of it. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's some guys that have come out and it's pretty clear that they've had substance abuse problems. Oh, yeah. I think Razor Ramon was one of the guys where that yeah. was a big problem with him. And then actually, what I think is kind of cool, I'm not sure all his practices are scientific, but Diamond Dallas Page, uh, yeah. DDP, is doing this yoga stuff, that's, and he does a lot of work with rehabilitating wrestlers yeah. who've had substance abuse issues. So yeah. something really good has come out of that, too. Well, the biggest part, thing Yeah, and the biggest reason that a lot of that stuff is beneficial is because somebody is empathetic towards them, they care about them, they're spending time with them to try to help them through this, and they're getting them somewhat active. So making their body feel better, giving them an endorphin rush that's different than drugs or substance abuse, but still makes them feel good, and just having somebody that cares about them. You think about a lot of addicts, what do they always say? Nobody cares, or they don't want to let somebody down, or anything along that line. It becomes more about a depressive cycle as far as what their substance abuse is doing. No one who's an addict wants to be an addict. So when you have somebody who's actually showing you a way, caring about you, helping you through it, it makes it more successful than just saying, well, stop doing drugs. Because that never works. It's like saying to somebody who's obese, stop being overweight. It doesn't work. You have to show people a little bit of empathy, help them out, walk them through it, and get them into a place where they can be a little bit more self-sustaining. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, let's do the, the best exercise ever. <laughs> so essentially, like, well, you, you highlight novel and effective movements, kind of like wrestlers. <laughs> yeah. um, how should people strike a balance between like basic movement while trying to be creative and novel in their workouts, I guess. And I guess this goes to like people and then trainers. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it comes down to the goal you're trying to achieve. So like I'll show an exercise and say, hey, here's a cool variation on this, but it's not in replacement of whatever a basic staple movement is, or it's something that just builds on top of the same principles. So it's like if you're doing a row, a row is a row is a row. Whether you use a band, a cable, a dumbbell, a barbell, or whatever. You do a plank, a plank is a plank is a plank, regardless of what you throw at it. If you want to increase the challenge of it, you throw in a different variable. Whether it's instability or a different type of resistance or a velocity, anything like that. They're all the same basic principles, you're just adding on top of it. Basic movement isn't something that should be considered fancy. So your hip has 6 degrees of freedom to it, your shoulder has about 9 degrees of freedom to it train through those degrees of freedom and find different ways of achieving the goal you're after. It's not something that should be considered fancy, it's just novel approaches to the same problem. A lot of people get kind of carried away with the idea of novel. Yeah. Um, well, let's start with, I guess, the trainer side of stuff. You can often see, it, and I've seen this in person, where a trainer will bring a different workout plan, and I don't think they've actually planned anything. I think it's just completely made up as they go. Mm -hmm. And it's different with the client every single time to more or less create the illusion that the client needs a trainer. And also to just be creative for the sake of creativity. So here's what I came up with this week. And, and personally, I reject that sort of behavior. I think on the other side, though, I've encountered clients who really do value creativity, novel stuff, and a slightly different experience every time. So yeah. I think you can still utilize the basic principles of what is good workouts without doing clown circus shit, yeah. but still cater that client's needs, so elaborate yeah. on that. Well, the biggest reason that you should have any exercise in any program is that it produces the results the client wants. So whenever you have any exercise in your program, you should be able to easily justify why it's there. So if I was to say, why are you having a client do that exercise? You should have a really easy and quick explanation as to why. If you don't, why are you doing that exercise? Plain and simple. You're there to get goals, get the results for your clients based on their goal set and do it in a safe and effective manner. If that means it's a fun way, great. If it means it's entertaining and something that the person wants to do, even better. 
but does it get the goals they're looking for or at least move them closer to that goalpost? If they can do that, then it doesn't matter whether the exercise is novel, a standard, like I've been doing back squats in like barbell back squats for over 20 years. I don't need it to become more advanced. I just put more weight on the bar. But once in a while, it's fun to throw some bands on it or hang some kettlebells off it or do some pause reps or some box squats or something like that because it just means that you stimulate it a little bit differently and you create a little bit of a novelty that makes it something that's a little bit more enjoyable to get into. Think about it sort of like your diet. How many days a week can you eat just chicken, rice, and broccoli? None. All, all of them. Yeah, you could literally eat chicken, rice, and broccoli every single day. How many people would get bored of that? A lot. There would be the odd person who's like, this is my jam, this is what I eat, this is everything. But then there's gonna be those people who are like, no, I need more than that, or I need something different. Cool, let's try some different food. It's just different food. You still have to process it, turn it into poop, maybe burn it off as exercise. Great, but as long as it's still basic staples of what you're eating, protein, fats, and carbs, do it. Have fun with it. As long as it doesn't give them diarrhea. Well, I mean, that's what made gold turn it into poop, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to go to taco time six days a week, but I mean, maybe that's a goal of yours. I don't know, but <laughs> taco time is a good There's a meme somewhere there, like, for all the Instagram people, like, turning food into poop. That's the meme. I, I could see you. I could see you bringing that to the forefront. Yeah, I mean, what do you do with coffee? You use it as a pre-workout, get energy, and it makes you poop faster. That's a great combination right there. You don't need to make it much more fancy than that. I feel like that could be your in. I know you're right, the hips and shoulders and stuff, but this could be a big one. I, I could be the poop guy. <laughs> that that might get me a lot of hashtags I don't want to be a part of. Well. <laughs> Don't like Patrick Humphrey and Jay Ashton tend to dabble a lot and that sort of stuff with their groups anyway. Yeah. A lot of poop talk. Yeah, but also it's more about like poop health and that kind of stuff. So yeah, yeah cool. But uh, it's not something that a lot of people gravitate towards. It's more of like a funny 12-year-old sense of humor kind of thing. That could be like a new Friday thing though. Because what was it? It was um, wacky. Fun Friday fun. fitness challenge. Yeah, now it could be like post your, your favorite turn into poop food. <laughs> Just take pictures of the toilet bowl afterwards. Just be like, compare. <laughs> Create a new thread. You probably got a whole new type of fan and follower, but I don't think you want to invite that sort of thing. It'll become a whole new type of uh, 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 niche hey, market to hey, tap into. You, you said it yourself, man. There's, there's clients that are ideal and the ones that pay your bills. Yeah. The poop people might have money. They, they might be all about showing over those hard earned ducats to see pictures of poop. <laughs> yeah. How did we get here? <laughs> I, I woke up and all of a sudden Andrew was in my living room. I don't know what happened. <laughs> I got to see, I got to see the base for the champions for the first time in person. Yeah, it's pretty sweet. It's uh, bigger than you'd imagine. That's what she said. Fuck. Hit him with the book one before this gets carried away. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hope there's not too many people who listen. This is the first episode ever. Going, what is wrong with these guys? No, they can't. It's just it's. It's Dean's followers. They've heard him already like three times. Yeah. Well, I think that's the thing is because usually you're talking about stuff that's borderline straight up physio stuff on a lot of podcasts. So we wanted yeah. to not get too deep into that sort of thing. And uh, with everybody that we have on here, it's like, all right, let's not try to have some vibes like Holly Baxter talking about trading dolphins or, <laughs> yeah, like, or, but uh, the hell was the Jordan Syatt one that was a nugget that he revealed? I can't remember. Oh, no, um, comedian. Yeah. comedian. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so because yeah, there's none of those in New York. Yeah, exactly. no. but he can out deadlift every single one of them. That's true. He does. He does bring something else to the table, I guess. Yeah, Plus, yeah, he yeah. makes coffee that makes you poop, I guess, and he talks about poop. Go there, you go. Jesus. There you go. He going after the poop people. We're noticing the expanding market. So when you're talking about the future of fitness industry, it's poop. Yeah, that that, was, that should have been your answer. Probably <laughs> um, gut, gut microbiome is an expanding area of interest, and yeah. you know, we had Sarah Ashman on to talk about that. And then I, I saw some sort of exchange, I don't know what it was, and I saw Lyle McDonald, I don't try to give him too much airtime, but he was just shitting all over this gut microbiome stuff. Yeah, uh, intended, it, right? It, it Lyle's, <laughs> Lyle's particular brand of uh, sensitivity when, yes. when interacting with people who yep. don't share his views and thoughts. So. Yeah, he's a guy. That's an interesting character. Yep. All right, so I'm sitting here and I'm looking at this uh, bookshelf of stuff, and I see at least four or five books that I have, that actually it's more like 10. So I just read David and Goliath, and you have it on the shelf. I just listened to it, finished it this morning. So what are you reading lately? Um, I just finished up Advanced Exercise Neuros, or Advanced Neuros, 
Advanced Exercise Neurophysiology. The title so advanced I can't even say shit. Yeah. So that was a fun read because uh, it goes into a lot of the stuff I want to talk about with some workshops that I have coming up. And it gives a little bit more of the depth of the specific neurophysiology that I haven't touched on yet. Um, aside from that, I haven't really had a lot of time for pleasure reading or low stuff. It's been a lot of just content creation kind of work. So that's kind of that big one that I just worked on. So get, I don't think anyone's going to download that on Audible. Not easily, no. So you got you got one you can pluck from kind of the, your list of favorites then? Um, the content Trap is a really good one. And I think that's something that people should be looking into, just figuring out what they're doing as far as uh, organizing how their business develops and expands and also what they do when things change. So he talks a lot about how different newspapers and publishers had to change their marketing perception away from a subscription manual to a classified and online advertising module. And the ones that did it really successfully thrived and the ones who didn't suffer significantly. But then also different variations as far as like political spectrum and social spectrum, people who've had basic jobs that have been either become obsolete or outsourced. What do you do in those situations? So really cool read. Yeah, I, I'm actually pretty sure that you mentioned this the last time I had you on, but you know, it's a good idea to refresh. Uh, Content Trap's great. One of my favorite things about it was it explains how Apple more or less, for, it's a strong word, but kind of failed to penetrate the, the market for desktop computers and having more than about three or four percent of the market because they didn't have the relationships with the software developers. They weren't particularly compatible with the quote content. Yeah. When Steve Jobs came back to the company, he learned from that lesson. Yeah. He went out and got all the licenses from all of the major, I think almost all of the major record labels to then create the iPod, but actually had iTunes where you could you get your iPod and you could get your music directly. Yeah. A mistake that Sony made where they created their MP3 players, but they decided not to even bother with any sort of direct link to the music. Yeah. It was so much easier to go and buy your iPod and now of course iPhones yeah. and link right up to Apple's own software, yeah. buy your music, poof, one-stop shopping and done. Yeah. And that's why um, you know, the iPod is one of the most successful products in the history of yeah. anything yeah. and no one's buying Sony MP3 players anymore. Yeah, and that's the division of a, a complement versus a commodity. So if you create stuff that adds into your service one way or another, that makes it massively impactful. So trainers can have stuff like that where they have tailoring available for their weight loss clients or where they have, yeah, I mean, if your, weight, your clients lose weight, what do they need to do? They need to change their clothing. So you have a tailor that you either direct people to for a discount or who know to say, okay, you lost a lot of weight, cool, I can help you to look better in the clothes you currently have. So that way you don't have to go out and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on new clothes. I mean, some people, if they're really, really valuable, that's a massive hint in what they're doing. And so it's a little bit more than just selling your own t-shirts with your logo on it. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's part of it. I mean, that obviously <laughs> buys into the concept, but then it becomes more about what can you do to make a better experience for the client? And how do you create that seamless integration to other services or other providers or other streams of revenue that your training could feed off of one way or another. Maybe something like a meal plan service, maybe uh, childcare, maybe dog sitting, maybe any of like travel, any of that kind of stuff could be an offshoot of training, but it's all something that comes back to that core principle of fitness, weight loss, health promotion, that kind of stuff. It'd be really easy to do, but it just takes the time and energy to do it. Because one of the cool things about working at Evolve is dogs are welcome. So yeah. people actually will bring their dogs in Yep. There's one trainer at our gym, I'll give a shout out to Leo, where one of her clients comes in with this little teeny dog wearing a diaper. Yep. So the client will work out and Leo will actually hold onto the dog nice. as this girl's training. So yep. imagine being a trainer going, yeah, no, I don't want to deal with that. And I'm like, man, that's a pretty cool way to keep a client happy and go yep. the extra mile. It's a very, very small thing to be able to say, yeah, I'll watch your dog while you come in and train. So the dogs have to go through like a, a bedding process? Yeah, they got to pull the sled. To be allowed? In front of people, they gotta pull the sled. You, know, you gotta have strong dogs. <laughs> yeah, well, we got uh, Jimmy comes in and he's got these two French bulldogs, and he'll just tie a plane to them. Dean, we're getting some static from you, buddy. I think he just had a plane fly overhead or something. Probably what it is. Yeah, he'll tie uh, these two French bulldogs and a plate behind him, and he'll drag it around. But nice. That's pretty cute stuff. Yep. All right, Guido, we still got you there? Yeah. All right. So I was gonna cut out. I don't know. All right. Well, you're back. I'm back. All right. Well, we should wrap this one up. So you might you might have to take this one home. I can't hear anything. <laughs> <laughs>
All right, fine. Real, real life, you're gonna take it home after. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, so uh, you know, this is the third time Dean Somerset's been on our podcast. I really kind of hope you know where to find him, but you know, I write really bad jokes with this stuff, and you know, unless someone's literally been released from a Cold War underground bunker um, <laughs> in the last couple of weeks, where can people find you? Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, my own website, DeanSomerset.com. Those are pretty much all the basis. And if you're ever in Edmonton, drop by and come for a workout. Yeah. Evolve downtown. Yep. Yep. Nice little place to work. It's sweet. It's like so many windows. I think I'm actually going to head over there for a workout today because I've never actually worked out at the downtown before. I'm yes. always confined to South and never have the time, but I've got the gap today. So sweet. Go down and say together. Well, my nephew is a, a hockey player. He's staying here. Uh-huh. My niece is staying here. So I'm going to drag him down there at around noonish and uh, see what he can do. Well, I'll be there then for sure. That's it. So that sounds great. Guys, thanks for tuning in. We really appreciate it. Give Dean a follow if you haven't already. Usually he's just mentioning, we missed a couple episodes. We try to mention him just as sort of a running joke, but actually having him on kind of completes that so we don't actually have to shout you out yeah. somewhere sneaky in the, uh, in the episode. So thank you very much for listening. Guys, we would definitely love to get some five-star reviews on iTunes, uh, you know, and share the episode with a friend. Uh, and if you really enjoyed this, you can go back and check out a couple of Dean's older episodes to learn more about kind of what he's all about. And some of the other episodes that we've, re- we've referenced, P2P was our last episode. He's great. Alex Diala was on recently, and 3,000 people have already downloaded that and loved it. So uh, thanks for checking us out. Have a great week. We'll return next week with, we haven't decided yet, we'll figure it out. Shut up and sit down.